Hello and welcome to the first edition of the Faber podcast for March 2012. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is novelist, journalist, and now true crime writer, Tobias Jones. Tobias Jones came to prominence with his best-selling first book, The Dark Heart of Italy, an eye-opening exploration of the disturbing realities behind Italy's beguiling facade. That book was the result of several years Jones spent living in Italy in the early part of the last decade. Though now based in the rural West Country, Jones's fascination with Italy remains strong. In 2009, he published his first crime novel, The Salati Case, featuring his beekeeping private detective Castagnetti, and set in a misty northern Italian city. Castagnetti reappeared last year in The White Death, and a third mystery is promised for 2013. Meanwhile, Tobias has produced a true crime book, Blood on the Altar, which recounts the story of every parent's worst nightmare, the disappearance of a child. 16-year-old Elisa Claps had set off to attend church one Sunday morning in 1993, in her hometown of Potenza in southern Italy. She simply vanished into thin air, with no explanation of where she might have gone or why. Elisa's family's nightmare was compounded by false sightings, malicious telephone calls and opportunistic ransom demands. Worse, the Italian authorities and the Catholic Church behaved towards them in a way that often bordered on contempt. And worse still, it was hard not to get the feeling over time that powerful people wanted this case to go away. The story which Tobias Jones tells of the Claps family's unrelenting search for their daughter and the truth about what happened to her is proof of the cliché that truth is often stranger than fiction. No novelist, I suspect, would have dared invent the bizarre twist that reawakened Tobias's interest in the case after his return to England, by which time it had seemed that those who wished the case to be archived for good were going to get their way. We'll come to that twist later, but I began by asking Tobias to describe how the morning of Elisa Clapsey's disappearance had unfolded for her family. Well, it was the 12th of September 1993 and Elisa Claps was a 16-year-old girl who went to church with one of her friends and her brother was waiting for her at home to come back to drive to the country house where his other brother and his parents were waiting to have Sunday lunch. And her friend came back and said, where's Elisa? And he said, she was with you. And the friend said, well, I can't find her. We got lost, separated, coming out of the church. And in the sort of minutes and hours that followed, it emerged that she hadn't been to church, but Elisa had met a strange 20-year-old man who was known to have a haircutting fetish. And he had a cut on his hand and had made up some fairly fanciful explanations of where he'd been in the meantime. And she was never seen again. And so that, that Sunday was the beginning of, of, a, of a mystery uh, that lasted for, for 17 years. And I, I know the adjective Kafkaesque is, is overused, so I, I'll use it sparingly, but it did seem to me that the Claps family's encounter with structures of power, the police, the magistrates, did have a Kafkaesque element in that it was very difficult ever to to get straight answers, to get action, to get any kind of satisfaction. They seemed they seemed to be hampered at every turn by the the whole structure of of power that was in place. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the the Claps family came up against a professional body, or more than one professional body, that first of all thought they were likely to have been involved in the disappearance, or who thought that Elisa must have run away from home, because this really is a, a very sleepy city where nothing ever happened, or apparently nothing ever happened, and maybe investigators didn't want to ruffle powerful feathers, but... Yeah, there was a degree of the corridors of power being closed off to this this family who very, very quickly, within almost hours, certainly days, had taken the strategic decision to play the media game. You know, the reason this became such a big story is that Gildo and his mother realised they were getting very little return from investigators and they thought they could put pressure on the investigation and publicise the disappearance and, as any of us would, publicise the fact that they were still searching for their daughter or their sister by accepting every invitation for an interview, by going on television as often as they could and were regular, regularly on, on television, on, on radio. So... That, I think, you know, there are many comparable cases like that where people have, have, have grasped that double-edged sword of collaboration with the media and investigators don't like it. They shut up shop when that happens because they don't want the media circus at all and they certainly don't want the spotlight on their investigation. So there was a locking of horns from, from very early on. And it has to be said, though very fundamental things you would expect to have been done were not done right at the beginning, such as the clothing that the the prime suspect had been wearing was not taken for examination. And the church, which was the last place Elisa was presumed to have been, was not searched. And I suppose the question arises, is this, is this gross incompetence or is it something more sinister? Yeah, it's a question, you know, we all wonder. And I've got to say, in Italy, people are much more prone to the conspiracy explanation than the cock-up one. You know, if you speak to Italian journalists, they will have a list of people involved in the investigation who were Masons. They will almost draw these diagrams of the powerful of Potenza and show you the links between the father of the suspect, the husband of the investigating magistrate, the priest, the links between the three and how those links radiate out to include a former prime minister so on and so forth. So there is certainly a lot of fascination with the conspiracy explanation because it does beg a belief that an an investigator could be that incompetent. I'm not always as sure as my Italian colleagues that the conspiracy explanation is the right one. I'm afraid I think it, it is just a slightly more dull explanation of In a country where there's barely any meritocracy, people get promoted way beyond their capabilities because their mother or father wanted them to get the job and pulled the right strings. And people aren't good at their jobs and they mess up. And, you know, there are endless examples of just extraordinary things that they went to take photographs of the escalators where Restivo allegedly cut his hand and they didn't have a flash, so they didn't take the photos for another month or two, by which, of course, the condition of the, the escalators were completely different. So endless 
incompetence. But, you know, you've got to say, I'm afraid that the British police weren't that much better. You know, they we didn't cover ourselves in glory here either, I'm afraid. And there was a real proliferation of false leads, wasn't mm. there? Um, there were sightings in Albania or Algeria mm. or mm. Africa, all sorts of things. And, and there were fake kidnap, um, ransom attempts and, and all sorts of things. And the, the result of this was, I suppose, to make the truth seem even more difficult to get at because it was so surrounded by all these, as you say, the conspiracy theories or opportunistic or d- just idle speculation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you look at those false leads, the question is always, was someone orchestrating them, which has long been the suspicion of the family and and, and many other people who have investigated this case, because every time it seemed that Restiva was going to be kept in solitary confinement, was coming up for trial, was going to be sentenced, there was a sighting or a a witness, an anonymous tip-off, a letter arrived in the in the in the offices of the the investigators, so there was it often seemed there was there was a an orchestration to these false leads, and if there wasn't an orchestration, there were just extraordinary coincidences. Like one woman who went to the police was found to have a SIM card that used to belong to the mother of the primary suspect, and again, you you sort of. You think if this was a film, you'd think the world is not that small. That's not a coincidence. And yet the family, the suspects say, well, that's just a coincidence. And and so through all those false leads, although, you know, as a, as a writer, you, you know, by this point, they are false leads. It reveals a world of of sort of murky characters and, and unbelievable coincidences that is, is kind of strangely fascinating, I'm afraid. And in a, a work of fiction, Danilo Restivo, the prime suspect, would be a red herring, wouldn't he? Because in, in a way, he sort of fits the profile of a prime suspect almost too well. Yeah, I mean, you know, the classic suspect in any crime novel is the sort of the the tall hypochondriac village idiot who who's easy to, to pin the blame on. And that's kind of how his friends and family tried to deflect the blame because he was so clearly a village idiot and they, they thought he, he, he wasn't able to plan something that, that appears to be so sophisticated as vanishing a girl in the city centre on a busy Sunday morning. There's ample evidence that the reason people didn't think he was he was the culprit was because he was kind of so obvious. And, and, and that in a country that loves its conspiracy theories the obvious was kind of less interesting and a bit dull. And the Italians have a word for investigations or anything that runs into the sand, but in Italian it's an, it's an active verb, isn't it? You yeah. can make something yeah. go into the sand yeah. rather than it just happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah in sabbiare. They, and, you know, there are constantly, you see the same verbs coming up on, time and time again in, in true crime stories. In sabbiare is one of them to get, to get sanded up depistare which you know is kind of hard to translate but is to to deviate or to lead on a red herring so yeah there there is an art to making a case confusing and convoluted rather than black and white you know it it all becomes a a shade of grey in which anyone's guilt is is very hard to believe and that's very much what happened in the Elisa Claps case wasn't it yeah yeah and there are still many unanswered questions. There are plenty of, of questions about 
who knew what and why other people lied and why did they come up with extraordinary explanations for their behaviour on that tragic Sunday afternoon in 1993. People who said they weren't in the town centre when they were, people who said that they'd gone to church but hadn't. So yeah, there's there's a lot of grey left, I'm afraid. You've visited the, the, the Basilicata region frequently as a result of investigating this case. Tell, tell me a little bit about what it's like. What's, what's the feel of it? It's, 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 it sort of sits in the, the instep of the, the Italian boot, doesn't it? What's, what sort of place is it? Well, I love, I love Basilicata. It's remote, mountainous, largely forgotten, huge amounts of emigration because of the poverty, very rural. It has two coastline because it's sort of it's on that part of the Italian boot that goes from the arch to the metatarsal. And it's kind of in many ways it seems untouched by modernity, and that's part of the attraction. And the people of Basilicata are on the whole very humble, simple, incredibly generous, very attached to their land. It's a wonderful, fascinating part of Italy where there are places like Matera where until 50, 60 years ago, people were still literally living in caves. So it, it has a, an antiquity and a, a rootedness to it, which is, which is fascinating and very attractive. And it's had this sort of idea of itself as not being touched by organised crime in a way that other parts of southern Italy and Sicily have been. And really this case has, has helped to expose that as, as a myth. Yeah, I mean, Basilicata, or Lucania as it was called, has often rather optimistically called itself the Happy Island, the, you know, the place where the mafias that affect Puglia and Calabria and Campania and Sicilia don't reach. And actually, partly because of this case, but also because of various other investigations through the 80s and 90s, it's very clear that that's a myth that serves serves organised crime. You know, there's an ironic book written by by a, an investigative Catholic priest called, you know, When the Mafia Doesn't Exist. And it's about what goes on when people think it doesn't exist. And that actually, it's like that famous line about, you know, the devil's happy for no one to believe in him. It's the, it's the same with 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 organised crime. And, and, and sadly, yeah, this case does highlight examples of a sort of living alongside organised crime, if you like, in certain very small pockets of society in Basilicata. Did you feel a certain trepidation as you as you went down there for the first time to, to meet the family? Did you have a sense of what you might be letting yourself in for? Yeah, I don't think it was trepidation. It was kind of... I mean, I was slightly sort of, as anyone would be, wary of putting in a foot in the door to, you know, throw a searchlight in other people's suffering. And that's a kind of a constant thing you live with as a, as a, as a, as a writer or journalist. But I think because they, they sort of welcomed journalistic allies, as they might say, that trepidation very quickly fell away and, and was replaced by not quite crusading attitude, but a, a, a hope that you could sort of serve the cause in some way and and a basic fascination you know of a real life who done it wanting to know who did do it and 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 why and who covered up and uh you know where is this 
16-year-old girl? And is she still alive? I mean, is it possible that 10, 12, 15 years later, she is still alive? So a, a kind of a, a curiosity, yeah, pulls you along, I suppose. And in the course of the years, you got to know the family very well. Yeah, I mean, it's not so many years, because I sort of waited a long time before contacting them. But I've been to to their house many times and, and they've come here and and yeah it, it becomes emotionally involving because you know you see the suffering you know we can't imagine the suffering of you, you haven't just lost your you know your beloved daughter or sister but for years and years and years, you don't know where she is, whether she's still alive. You have to follow every lead, even though you know it's bull. Uh, you have to give money to charlatans because there's a one chance in a million that they might be true. You, you're toyed with, you're, you're teased, you're taunted. The powers that be, whether the police or the priest or whoever, are kind of austere and look down their nose at, at you like a nuisance. And through all that, you must sadly believe that she probably has been murdered, but you can't prove it. And you don't know. You know, none of us can imagine the suffering, and it's etched on their faces, and it's with them all the time. And so, sort of, when you talk to people about such things, you, you inevitably sort of have an empathy with it and think this is wrong. And if I'm a writer, you can't write the wrong, but you can certainly point to what's wrong and. And, and, and try and do your bit. And, you know, that's not without its dangers because as a, you know, as a writer, you want to maintain objectivity and not become too close to people you're writing about. So it's complicated and draining and, and exhausting and sometimes uplifting, you know, when you go through things with, with people. And like I say, you know, it's not like I've known them for anything like as long as some of the Italian journalists, but there's something very admirable about them and and everyone who's met them and knows them sees that. And in a book which is full of shady, duplicitous characters who who don't say what they mean and we don't really know what they're doing, I find it uplifting or inspiriting in, in to have characters like Don Marcello, mm. the um, the priest, mm. and, and Marco Gallo, the, um, the, the private investigator. What, what sort of part did they play in keeping the whole thing going and, mm. and, and not being forgotten? Well, they're the, other than, you know, the Claps family, they're the heroes of the book, really. And, and it's, it, it's hard to think what would have happened to that family without them, because as the investigation was petering out, six, seven, eight, nine years after Elisa's disappearance, by which time the case has been archived and the family can't think there's anything else to do. Along comes this extraordinary priest who works for an anti-mafia organisation who's from that part of Italy and simply wants to share their sorrows and, and help carry the pain and do what he can. An inve a private investigator who works pro bono for over a decade, following every lead, despite all the demands of his job and his, I think, five children. And yeah, they are, they're the heroes because they, they kept the case alive and spoke truth to power on many, many occasions with consequences, you know, with, with costs and consequences. Did you yourself reach a point where you thought, 
in the early 2000s, we probably know as much as we're ever going to know. It, it, the truth has been lost somewhere along the line. Yeah, I'm afraid I did, which is kind of why I let the story drop. You know, most most journalists probably have a dozen, two dozen stories they follow, maybe write short pieces about on paragraphs in the news sections of papers and and think this might become an essay or a book or something one day. And, and this was one that it interested me and I'd read about it and barely written about it. And yeah, it seemed to seem to be petering out and the mystery seemed like it was going to stay a mystery. So you must have been very shocked when you opened a newspaper on the south coast of England when you returned to this country and saw a, a stark reminder of the Elisa Claps case. Yeah, it's it's just shocking. I mean, there is there is a point at which any I'm sorry to call it a story, but that's you know what what a journalist or writer would call it. You know, it, there is a, a tipping point in in a story at which point you think this is something I have to write. You know, I'm going to drop everything and 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 do it. You know, when it emerged that Daniel Restivo, the man that everyone suspected of doing away with Elisa when it was discovered he'd been arrested by Dorset police for under on suspicion of murdering his next door neighbour and that hair hanks of hair had been placed in both her hands and this was the hair fetishist from Potenza who'd been with Elisa before she disappeared and had mysterious cuts on his hands you know it's at that point you think this is just beyond coincidence you know surely now he's going to be nailed and yet again, for years and years, it petered out and the Dorset police, to their huge frustration, the frustration of people in Italy, again, the case petered out. And there was nothing that they could do to to bring him to trial. Yeah, I thought there was going to be a black and white contrast between the Italian incompetence of mm -hmm. the investigation and, and English professionalism. But in fact, there were quite a few, you know, dropped stitches in, in the UK too, weren't there? Yeah, I mean... It's easy to say, I suppose, with hindsight, they should have done this, they should have done that. But I've watched the interview with the, the son of the murdered mother within 24 hours of her murder saying, the Italian who lives opposite has got her keys because he accidentally picked them up. And she sent an email you know, very shortly before her death to a friend saying, oh, I think the Italian opposite has taken my keys. You know, this was 2002 by which time you just need to do a Google search on the Italian's name and you'd get a tidal wave of, of allegations against him relating to the Elisa Claps disappearance. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary that that he wasn't investigated further. But he, he, he seemed to have a very clear alibi. You know, he had a, a stamped piece of paper from the educational college in Bournemouth where he, he was saying he was there the day of the murder so police analyzed that and and yet when they went to to take you know dna swabs and asked what, what footwear were you wearing that day of the murder and his trainers are soaking in bleach in the bath you know most people i think should have a light that switches on and say hey hang on that's not normal behavior you know soaking your trainers in bleach in a substance that's known to remove traces of DNA and of blood. 
Well, I, th- I thought the fact that the victim, Heather Barnett's computer, wasn't examined for a considerable time after her death was also surprising. And you were told by a, a, a policeman, well, we didn't think it was relevant. Mm. That, that's, that strikes me as astonishing in the, in the 2000s. Yeah, there's no real explanation for that, you know. It's surely one of the first things you do as an investigator, go through the, the hard drive of someone's computer. You know, we all live our lives through our technology. And, you know, 2002... Yeah, should have been the the beginning of the investigation. So you know, in, in Britain as much as Italy, there were there were mistakes made. But then even even when it had become apparent that Danilo Restivo was the suspect, and you know, almost certainly must have been responsible for this hair fetishist's murder. Even then, they they couldn't pin anything on him, and so the years went by, and for a second time, he seemed to have got away literally with murder. Toby, do you think the same thing could happen again in Italy? Different different characters, perhaps, but the same extent of cover-up and concealment and power defending itself? Or have, have, have things changed in the last 20 years? I'm afraid I suspect it'll happen again, and not just in Italy. You know, people go missing with astonishing frequency. One of the most popular programmes in Italy that I refer to often in the book because it was a was a forum for this case is Kilavisto, which is who's seen them and it's it's wall-to-wall missing persons and so i'm afraid it happens a lot and and often it it is with connections to the powerful and the powerful are protected that's that's life you know in in britain as well as italy so with different nuances and different characters and different settings it sadly may well repeat itself tobias jones Blood on the Altar is available now in hardback. For more information on it, as well as Tobias's other titles, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme, in which my guest will be evolutionary anthropologist Robin Dunbar, who will be telling me all about the science of love and betrayal. I hope you can join me then. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.